Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Paintings by the French artist Claude Monet are among the most recognizable and popular artworks today. But in his lifetime, during the late 19th century, Monet was revolutionary for his use of short brush strokes, the way in which he captured light and painting outdoors. His style gave birth to the Impressionist movement. Now there's a Claude Monet immersive experience in the Atlanta area, and later this hour, City Lights producer Janine Etter sits down with the curator Mario Iacampo to learn more about the interactive exhibition. First, the Rialto Center for the Arts, Season of Power and Spirit at Georgia State University is underway with an array of artists from many cultural backgrounds. Among the notable performers, will be the female a cappella quintet from Zimbabwe, Nobuntu. Nobuntu's style includes a range of music, from traditional Zimbabwean songs to Afro-jazz to gospel. Joining me now via Zoom to speak more about the group and their upcoming performance are two of its members, Duduzile Sibanda and Joylin Sibanda. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you for Thank having you. us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. So please tell us, what is the meaning of the name Nobuntu? This is Dudu speaking, Duduzile Sibanda. Nobuntu means mother of humanity. Oh, that's a beautiful name. Yes, in our language, the Ndebele language, where we come from, we've come from Bulawayo, the second largest city in Zimbabwe. And the language that's mostly spoken that dominates is Ndebele. So in Ndebele, no stands for mother. And Ubuntu is an umbrella term for everything that's good, love, peace forgiveness, and everything that a woman or a mother embraces. So we decided to call ourselves the mothers of Ubuntu, no Ubuntu. Oh, wow. How and when did the group begin? Hi, I'm Jailin. The group Nobuntu began back in 2012 on the 1st of June in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe. Would each of you tell us about your roles and contributions to the group? So my role in the group, I'm a vocalist. I'm a songwriter. I do finance sometimes, like we rotate the uh, duties each and every year. Everybody has on duty, you know, a production, 
traveling and stuff, all those things that we, we have to do. So we give each other duties and we rotate duties. Yeah, I think Dudu can add <laughs> from that. Yeah, yeah. So when we started, we had no clue howsoever to how to handle ourselves as Nobunju since we would be touring all over the world and doing everything. So in order to learn how to manage ourselves, we decided to give each other roles in the group as per our strength. So as Joylene um, highlighted, she mostly does finance. That's where her strength is. She knows how, how to handle finance. And I do most of the talking with journalists. I'm also a vocalist, which is my main job at Nobuntu, but I, I also do uh, publicity. I talk a lot about Nobuntu in interviews, in the newspapers and stuff. And we have Heather Dube. Heather is more of hospitality. She takes care of our travels, our bookings and stuff. And um Zanele Manenga. Zanele Manenga is a vocalist and a percussionist, but she also does stage rehearsals. She manages all of that. And we have Tandega Moyo. Tandega takes care of our wardrobe, our makeup, and our style. So uh, in a nutshell, we mostly manage ourselves and we do the work as well. You are managers as well as artists. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Would you describe your sound or musical style? Our sound is rooted mostly on our tradition, our traditional music, of which most of it is still undiscovered. But uh, we know that it's been passed to us from generation to generation. We have Shona origins, Heather and Zainele Ashona, from the Shona tribe, uh, and the rest of us are from the Ndebele tribe. So we have a fusion of both those traditions alongside with more other tribes that come from the, the, the Matebeleland region where we come from in Zimbabwe. So our sign, sound is mostly traditional music, is based on the traditional music and new compositions that we've uh, composed over the years, but uh, we are inspired more by our traditional music. Let's talk about a couple of your songs. For example, Kula and Narini. Am I saying it right? Is it Kula or Kula? Kula. 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 Yes. Kula and Narini. Uh What do those songs address? Ula means sing. So in this song, we are saying sing when you are sad, sing when you are happy, sing when you're confused, sing anytime because music gives you peace and music brings love and everything, you know, in life that anyone, music connects people. So in a song, Ula, we are just saying, you know, music, you can listen or sing to music any day, any time, whether you're in office, whether you're at work, whether you are, you know, in army, whether you are at war, whether you are, you know, music always bring you peace in your heart. Mm. Yeah. So music is good for your soul at the end of the day. Yes. And Narini? And Narini. Narini means forever. So in Narini, we we talk about love. That love is there forever. Yeah, last forever and ever and ever. Love doesn't die (laughs) at the end of the day. Narini, Narini, 
the, the verses from Psalm. Psalm where we say love is patient, love is kind. In, in our own language, of course. So it quotes some of the verses in the Psalm, the Bible. How does your music convey the importance of social change? Well, we, we, we are young, but we, we, we sing mostly music that has been passed down on us. So we touch on, even if we sing traditional music, we touch on issues that happen every day. So you'll find that most of our music speaks on everyday issues, the changes that are there, how people interact with each other, what is happening today in our age, and, and, and a lot of things. So with your music, you are both honoring your heritage mm-hmm. while at the same time modifying tradition to resonate with your generation. Would that be correct? Yes. 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 And does that involve changing lyrics or speaking to the audience before you sing? How do you address that? Well, music is a very, very, very universal language. So in as much as we we explain songs in the beginning before we sing them or after we sing them, we mostly love the, the, the song or the music to speak for itself, even if it's a different language. See, when you listen to music, even if it's in a different language, it, it somehow talks to you in a certain way. Even if you do not understand what the song is saying in language, but you sort of resonate with it somehow. So we mostly let the music do the talking itself and send its own message before we say what it's about. Now, many traditional South African languages include a click sound in speech and singing. That's not easy for Westerners to pronounce. (laughs) The South African singer and civil rights icon Miriam Mm Makiba famously featured that in her piece titled The Click Song. (laughs) Would you talk about this sound, how to pronounce it, and how it's used? In the Ndebele language, Ndebele is a Nguni language, and Nguni languages are from South Africa. So quite a long story, but we, our origins are from South Africa. So most of our languages have clicks. And so it's something that we were, we were born with. We didn't have to go to a school or an institution to learn how to click. It's something that's embedded in me. So you'll find that uh, most of our words have clicks because they're just like that. For example, if I say ikanda, ikanda means egg. So I say ikanda, I don't know how many times a week, saying maybe if I say, pass me an egg, I'm saying, ikanda. <laughs> you know, so that's part of, of, of my language. And, and a frog is called ikoko. Yeah. So it's part of my language. And if you grew up in the Nguni region, where we come from, it's something that's pretty, pretty, pretty quite normal. And you you don't have to go to any institution or school for it. It's something that you hear when you're born. Yeah. It's part of our language. Yes. So would you say the click provides natural percussion or immediate percussion to the melody of your language yes so some yes people, it does yeah some people who've heard us talking even if they don't understand what we're saying they say like we talk sing <laughs> <laughs> they say you sound like you're singing but you're talking <laughs> because some of some of our, our sounds that we make when we're singing have clicks like if you want to make a percussion and say oh wonderful you know, I, I can easily do that because it's part of my language, something that I do every day. 
You mentioned carrying on traditions. Are there South African artists or groups you admire or have emulated older groups or artists? Yeah, there, there are so many. The type of music that we do, it's called imbube. Mm-hmm. So imbube, if you know the famous Lady Smith, Black Mambazo, oh, they course. do imbube. So, and Nobuntu came into the picture and we became the first all-female imbube group in the world. You know, so we look up to those guys so much. I'm our teller queens from South Africa. They inspire us. We, we grew up like them, still doing Imbove and become, you know, legends of Imbove and keep carrying this music to the next generation and coming generation. And the likes of Miriam Makeba, Wusim Shongo, you know, there are so many that we look up to them. Because in Zimbabwe, especially in Zimbabwe, we Imbube, we know that Imbube it's been done by men only. So we 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 are the first all female group to do Imbube in Zimbabwe and in the world. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, so it, it's such an honor for us to to be in that position. So you travel the world promoting the culture of your homeland? Yes. Yes. What is most important for people around the world to know about the culture of Zimbabwe? What do you most want others to learn and understand? Well, for me, this something that I always say to people and preach about where we come from is that we know ourselves. Identity is very, very important where we come from. You have to know who your forefathers are, what your lineage is, and how your ancestors and how you, you, you came about so that you can be able to put yourself out there in the world like we are doing. We are so confident uh, about telling our stories and our tradition because we have a serious foundation about our background. We know ourselves individually and our lineage individually. So it's such an easy thing to go out there in the world and tell messages and teach people about our culture and tradition because we know our identity and where we come from. And it's something that comes easily to us because it's been passed down to us orally from generation to generation. So what we are simply doing is taking it out of Zimbabwe, Africa to the world. So identity, identity is very important. And what have you heard from audiences, from people who attend your concerts, who are new to your sound? and the culture of your country. That we good musicians, first and foremost, <laughs> they love our music <laughs> and that they connect with us mm-hmm. regardless whether they, they can hear uh, the language or not. or not. But every every time we sing, you know, we change people's hearts. You know, somebody will come, we, hey, she had a bad day, but we sing, you know, we lift up people, we connect with the world through our music. Yes. Nobuntu members, Duduzile Sibanda and Joylin Sibanda, perform with the entire group this Saturday at Georgia State University's Rialto Center for the Arts. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. 
This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. Paintings by the French artist Claude Monet are among the most recognizable and popular artworks today. But during his lifetime, in the late 19th century, Monet was revolutionary for his use of short brush strokes, the way in which he captured changing light and painting outdoors. His style gave birth to the Impressionist movement. The Claude Monet immersive experience illuminates the life and works of this visionary artist and opens Saturday at the new Exhibition Hub Art Center in Doraville. City Lights producer Janine Etter recently spoke with Mario Iacampo, the founder of Exhibition Hub and curator of the Monet experience. Here, he explained why he chose Monet as the subject for this immersive exhibition. You know, when, you, when we went through the process of choosing which artists would, would best fit the, this medium of immersive experiences, you know, we quickly got to a very short list of people like Monet, Van Gogh, Klimt. And, and in Monet in particular, Monet painted many, many landscapes, painted many landscapes at different points of the day because of his fascination with lighting. And so I think that he's a bit of a natural, you know, you're always looking, obviously, when we're creating an exhibit, uh, we're always looking for an artist that has a certain, should we say, following or notoriety or, or reason why he's important. And I think with Monet, the, the advent of photography, when everybody was talking about, well, there'll be no more, what do we need artists anymore? We just want to take a picture. I think he proved he proved that wrong completely because the art and pictures are two completely different things. Even though when you look at Monet's work, you see the influences of, of photography because before him, it was unthinkable to cut a scene. But, you know, when you look at his, Monet's paintings, the front part of a rowboat is cut off or there's only half a building, much like you would have in a photography. But this with him, it's in a painting. But fundamentally, you know, he was a very interesting person. Uh, he was a prolific painter, painted over 3,000 paintings. And he, and he studied, which I think is always interesting with an artist, when, when they study a subject and they paint it over and over. And, and Van Gogh did the same thing. But Monet did it his own way by doing over and over at 10 in the morning, at 11 in the morning, at noon, at 1. You know, when you look at his cathedral in Rouen, and you see the different times of the day that he painted it, it really gives you a, a greater appreciation of the scene he was painting. I think that all those things together, I think brought us to, to choose Monet. And Monet was prolific. And you mentioned quite a few of his works, but out of his over 2000 works of art, how did you decide which works to include? Well, you know, when we, when we start with an artist, from a creative perspective, we're always looking at his life and how did he move in his life? What influenced him? And, and really from there, then you start to have an idea of the important works in his art. The first 20, 25 pieces of art to include in the, in the immersive experience, because at the end, there's, over, there's well over 400 paintings represented in one form or another throughout the experience. And so when you, you arrive at, at the 20 to 25, and in, in Van Gogh's case, you've got the Nymphia series. You know, he's the bridges, Venice, you know, with San Maggiore, uh, London. And, and you, you arrive at, uh, at the critical junctures, if you want, of his life, and you start to build a story. Then the next level is really you're, you're choosing paintings that complement the storyline so that it, you can go from one era to the other. Like in Monet's case, we focused very much on two elements to tell the story. One was lighting and the different parts of it because it was so important in his life. Two was his voyages. I mean, he traveled everywhere to, take, to paint. He went to Norway, so we have scenes with snow. 
He went to London and you have the fog. He went to Bretagne and you have the, the large rock formations. He went to Southern France. Obviously, when you talk about Monet, you can't not talk about his garden at Giverny or his house at Giverny. What was really interesting about his house in Giverny is when you see pictures of these brilliant blues and brilliant yellows, I mean, shocking colors of, his, of the different rooms, which have, really have nothing to do with the paintings uh, that he was painting, which, has, which I think tells you a little bit about the person. And then the Venice scene. So we, so we, we decided what we were going to do with, with Monet is, yes, focus on, on his major works, but tell it from the perspective of his voyages. And you mentioned some of it just now when you were speaking, but if you could elaborate a little and tell us about Monet's style and, and how it changed the world of art. Well, what's always fascinating when you look at an artist's style for me is you often find that one of handicap that the artist had becomes a force for the artist. And I've got two two great examples for that. One is with Van Gogh, where he was somewhat colorblind. And so it led to these brilliant colors that he used, which, which really weren't real. But, you know, they weren't really what he was seeing. He was enriching it. With Monet, Monet had cataracts. And so a lot of his work, when you, when you see him, he would have to go back and forth between the scene, walk back to the painting. And, and I think that that handicap, if you want to call it that, helped them develop a style of, of things not being clear, if you want. And what was the impact of his painting outdoors? Well, from a technical perspective also, he came at an era where the, the base of the painting, of the paint, could be used outdoor. It wasn't influenced by dust. So he could paint directly what he saw, as opposed to having to sketch and then go home. So really, when he sat outside and he did, you know, again, I come back to Rouen because it's a, it's a really interesting study in, in light and color and time of day. You know, he could stay in the same place and paint at different times of day from this exact same perspective. So I think, I think it encouraged and it nourished to some extent in, in his style of being outdoor because he did, you know, like, unlike a lot, of, a lot of other artists, he did very few portraits of himself or of other people. And even in some of the letters that he wrote to Clemenceau, which was the prime minister at the time, and he wrote to him often, they exchanged letters. He would always say how annoyed he was at people. He would always say that how annoyed he was that somebody came to visit because it really bothered them and it really slowed down his work. So he was really a, a person focused on the outdoor and on his paintings. And he was able to, because he was also financially, you know, he was one of those artists that even during that era was able to sell enough paintings to live on, you know, and live out very well, as opposed to some of, some of the other artists where you find out they were paupers and, and people, people later on made money, but the artist himself did. But in, in Monet's case, he lived, you know, he was uh, commercially successful. So it allowed him to travel and do, and even when he traveled, he was always outdoor. If you look at any of the series of his paintings, he wasn't traveling to go inside a church to paint. He was traveling to do some majority from the outside. He was traveling to do the parliament in London, but from the outside. So I think that the outdoor uh, landscape element was a major force and a major source of motivation for him. And you talked about it earlier, photography was invented around the time Monet was born, roughly 1839, and, and some saw this new technology as a threat. That would phase out paintings. However, Monet's idea seemed to be focused on capturing the essence of what can't be expressed in a photograph. How would you describe Monet and other contemporary artists of his time being impacted by the invention of photography? I think the, um, the light is a huge influence because it's because light is also so important in photography. But the step that goes way beyond photography, especially in his era, is the layering that you can do with a painting and the interpretation that you can do with your brush strokes that you couldn't do with a photography. I mean, yeah, today with Photoshop, you can do all kinds of things. But back then, 
the photography was a was what you saw really so even though there's a feeling of influence it's not a photograph because of its richness it's like um, you know all the artists of his time were all influenced by japanese prints because there was a huge japanese prints exhibit in france and paris and they all went to see this and they because they'd never seen anything like this and so in their own way they were all influenced you know with monet he dwelled into the the whole notion of the 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 nymphia the garden the japanese bridges even though he didn't paint like a, a japanese print per se he, he bought a huge collection of japanese prints and you know his style was influenced not by the um, this notion of 2d 3d stamps that came from japan but he was definitely influenced when you see what he built in his backyard you know he had over 20 bridges in his backyard you know we always see a picture we always see a painting with one bridge but you have to remember he had over 20 bridges so he could paint different bridges at different times of the day depending where the sun was and it had huge japanese components in there that he painted in his own style so i think that he was influenced by photography he was influenced by japanese but not in the sense of copying what they did or reproducing what they did but in the sense of inspiring a new way of presenting that art. And what more can you tell us about the influence of Japanese art on Monet? I mean, the, um, the artists of the time were blown away, if you want, because it was so foreign to all the traditional techniques that had been taught and developed in Europe for hundreds of years. And here comes this idea that you could do a series of flat patterns, put them one in front of the other, much like a theater would do with set pieces, and develop this notion of 3D depth, even though it's really very flat. And one of Monet's signature works is his oil on canvas painting, Water Lilies, which went through numerous iterations before its completion. The image we now know famously as water lilies includes three panels about six feet high and 14 feet wide. And when fully displayed in a curved room, the viewer becomes immersed in the painting, which was Monet's original intent. So it seems that Monet was ahead of his time in the idea of immersive art as well. What are your thoughts on Monet being ahead of his time with the idea of immersive art? Well, when you go to, um, we're, we're talking about the Orangerie in France, where, where they're displayed. It's interesting because it's one of his few large works. And when he did that work, you know, historically, it wasn't really clear what he wanted to do with it. Because, yes, there was this idea of a permanent placement of the Orangerie, but then there was a dispute. And it was really took a long time for that to evolve. And we discussed the Orangerie in the exhibit. We have a whole section of that for that purpose. When you're looking at the Orangerie, it's this idea that you're surrounded by his garden, in essence. That's really what you feel when you're looking at the the three three large paintings that make the Orangerie. You feel like you've gone to his garden and you feel a little bit what he felt. And for Monet, that's important because he painted so much sceneries that I think that's the, the, the notion of immersed happened every day because he was always taking what he saw on a large scale and then reducing it to what we're used to seeing, you know, you know, 60 centimeters by 90 centimeters or, you know, uh, or maybe a little bit bigger, but nothing like of the style of the Orangerie. So I think that in the Orangerie, it was a major undertaking on his part to recreate the environment that was so inspiring to him. Mario Iacampo, founder of Exhibition Hub and curator of the Monet Experience, speaking with City Lights producer Janine Etter. We'll return with more of their conversation in just a moment. 
Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. If you are just joining us, we've been listening to City Lights producer Janine Etter with Mario Iacampo, the founder of Exhibition Hub and curator of the Monet Experience, which opens this weekend. Here... Yacampo explains how this show differs from the last immersive experience he brought to Atlanta, which featured the life and work of Vincent van Gogh. Well, it always starts with the art. So his art is so different. So the way you tell the story is different. Monet painted principally large canvases, large visual canvases. So I think his art lends itself to this technology. That's one. I think two, it's an opportunity really through the eyes of the artist to travel to over 10 countries in Europe because you feel you're there. You feel you're on, you're on one, moment, one moment, you're on a, a boat in, in, in England where you feel at one point that you're on the gondola in Venice because you're in front of this works of art or you feel you're in the snow-covered grounds of Norway or, or the, um, the, the rocks to Normandy and Bretagne. So I think that what sets him apart is that. And then his work is so different. The additional experiences that we have over and above the immersive experience are very different, you know, because of who he was. For example, we recreate his uh, atelier in Giverny, where we have a room where we have the paintings that you see when you go to Giverny recreated exactly as, as if you were there. And you can see from there how he was looking through a window and outside the window, we recreate a garden where we have the bridges and we have flowers and we have uh, grass and we have the, the small pond. So as, as you're sitting in the room uh, admiring the reproductions of his art, there is a window in that same room that looks out into a garden. So I think that from that perspective, it's very different than Van Gogh. Because Van Gogh, we, we, we recreated mainly three-dimensional objects like his bedroom or like a vase. Whereas here, we're recreating his environment because his, his environment is what really inspired him in many ways. So I think that they're very different experiences that way. And of course, the music, you know, the music always transports you in a different direction. In Monet, we record an original soundtrack of music with a 62-piece orchestra because I wanted a very classical feel. I felt it was necessary with Monet and his art. With Van Gogh, I wanted more of a classical but electronic feel. You know, obviously, when you, create, when you record a soundtrack with 62 pieces of a 62-piece instrument, you have little nuances in the sound that you could never get from a studio. So describe this Monet immersive experience, what the viewer would experience, including each room and the virtual reality 3D experience. So if we look at the overall experience, when you arrive, we speak a lot about his life. We speak a lot about the important works. We have a whole section transition element and explanation 
with a lot of photography where we show how the two are intertwined. So we speak a lot about photography because it was important. And then we always go into what his life was like, what, what some of the correspondence with, with people he had in his, in his lifetime. Because I think the correspondence is always important because then you're hearing what he thought at that moment when he was doing something as opposed to historically interpreting. And so that's the first part of the exhibit. The second part of the exhibit is the atelier in a room where the paintings are reproduced and hung on a wall exactly like they would be if you went to, to Giverny, France. The couch is exactly reproduced the same way, the chair, all these kind of things. So you feel you're there. The next part is the garden. And there we have uh, several bridges reproduced so you can walk on the bridges. Uh, the bridges are are also uh, adorned or hanging, hanging flowers and plants. Uh, some of the pathway is projections of fish and nymphias on the floor. So you feel that you're in that pond and you can sit there, you know, there's bird noises. It's, it's kind of a Zen kind of feeling and you can sit and wait for the rest of your group or you can sit and wait and watch for a little while before you go into the immersive room. The immersive room uh, really, we go through his life and through his important works on a 35-minute journey. We take you to the gardens of Giverny. We take you to the Côte d'Azur. We take you to Norway. We take you to, to Venice. Uh, we take you to Normandy. And at the very end, we take you in the closing of the immersive experience. It's really focusing on the gardens of Giverny and his house and the inside of his house. Because I think he painted a lot of art in other countries, but he kept coming back to Giverny. He would do a voyage and come back. He would do a voyage and come back. He, you know, so it was always short spurts when he left. He didn't leave for years on end. He would leave and go to, to a trip to Norway, do the paintings that he wanted, to, the paintings. But then he would come back to Giverny and paint again the bridges, again the, the, the backyard, if you want, again the entrance to his house. So, so he, he always came back. So we try and finish the 35 minute story with that. We go from there to an interactive room where you know people can paint and, and I guess find a little bit of Monet in themselves. And it's a little bit different than what we do with Van Gogh because what we're trying to show people in that interactive room is this notion of unfinished paintings. So what we have, we have a whole section for example, where we leave blank the part that's not painted. And we ask people to imagine what was there. So what, what was on the other side? What was the, can you paint the rest of the rowing boat? Can you paint the rest of the, the parliament buildings in London? Can you paint the rest of the San Majore? So we try and inspire people to think about what he was seeing when he decided to crop, if you want, this painting. From there, we go into a 10-minute virtual reality experience. The virtual reality experience is always a bit different than the immersive. Why? Because in the virtual reality, we can guide you individually. And we can tell you a much more detailed story about what you're seeing. We, again, travel through different parts of Europe, but we focus on the painting. We focus on the surrounding that he had in that painting. And we speak a little bit about that, which is because we have your complete attention with the virtual reality glasses and we can guide your where you're looking you know with the virtual reality you can dwell deeper into what they were showing you versus the immersive experience where you're looking all around you're choosing to look which part to look at because obviously it's 360 and you can't see everything at the same time because people often ask why have both well because they are very different experiences in one you choose where to look and you may have to watch two or three times to see everything and the other one, we guide you and it allows us to, to go deeper, to dwell deeper into the artwork. And then, of course, there's the last part where you can buy some trinkets and go home. <laughs> Hopefully you like them. And similar to the Van Gogh immersive experience, this Monet experience has an original score. How was the score created? Well, with Monet, I worked with a Belgian composer, Michel Biseglia. And he comes from a jazz background. So it was a lot of challenge to reduce the amount of piano because obviously jazz background, you know, he plays, plays the piano as his main instrument. So 
But the way we started really is that I sent Michelle my original kind of one page outline of how I saw the show and the different elements in the show. And then what Michelle would do is he would quickly record some small segments of 10, 15 seconds to give me a feel of what he, what he was thinking about for each segment. So then as we expanded the segments and sent it to him, he would expand his music. And it really, up until the very end, the visuals drive the music. And then at the very end, Michel will come in and then the music will drive the visuals because he'll adjust the special effects, he'll adjust the tempo, he'll add instruments just at the right place. And you know, it's, it's an evolving process. generate a score and then put something to the score. We don't generate a whole visual and then put a score to the visual. It's really each time on the visual side, we're sharing visuals with Michelle and Michelle is each time adjusting his tempo, adjusting his music. And then at the very end, we tend to adjust the tempo of the visuals to fit the music at the very, very end because the music will always, you know, in any, be it in a movie, I find, be it anywhere, the music at the end drives the audience more than the visuals do. Because the, the music, I find, touches us more than looking at something on a screen. So at the very end, the music tends to take over, you know, when we really get to the little things where we got the soundtrack just the way we want it, and maybe we have to speed up or slow down some of the visual tempo, or maybe add or delete some things. It's a process that, you know, over months, they all everybody comes together. And I had a chance to visit the immersive experience, and it was stunning and beautiful. And I especially was was uh, blown away by the score. Yeah, it's um, you know an original soundtrack was sixty-two piece orchestra. It was interesting because we we recorded the soundtrack between Christmas and New Year in a small studio in Bulgaria, and the studio wasn't big enough for everyone. So we would bring in 10 instruments at a time or a section at a time, record, and then we bring in another section, another section, another section. And over the course of four days, we recorded all the instruments, including, you know, we probably had enough material for three soundtracks because we, once we were there, we were trying different things. And then Michelle went home in the studio and put it all together. But it came together uh, once a score was written. It's quite interesting how how quickly it can come to a final product. That was, uh, for me, that was quite amazing because I thought we'd be in the studio for weeks on end with musicians. And really over the course of four days, it was the 62-piece orchestra was recorded, you know? And part of the plan will be that there will be evenings with live orchestra. We will do special evenings where we'll have a live orchestra, maybe not 62-piece because then there'll be no room for anyone else, but maybe 24 or 42, 44, where people can come and the music will be played by the live orchestra. Yeah, that'll be, we're quite, we're quite looking forward to it. That was always the plan from the beginning and then COVID ruined our plans for that. But so we're gonna get back on that horse. And you use the word edutainment, coined by hip hop artist KRS-One to describe one of the many goals of your organization in creating these experiences. Can you please explain what, what you mean by that term, edutainment? I guess education and entertainment. So for us, especially when we're doing an exhibit like an, a major artist. What we're trying to do is expose the audience to more uh, of the artist, that they might maybe have a small interest in the artist, but I think through the experience, expose the audience through the life of the artist. I think that that's the, the education part. The entertainment part, I think what we try and do is, the perspective, if you want, is you work all week. So we want you to be entertained while learning without having to work for it. We try and expose the artist to the audience through context. Mario Iacampo, founder of 
exhibition hub and curator of the Claude Monet Immersive Experience, speaking with City Lights producer Janine Etter. The experience opens this Saturday and runs through December 30th at the new Exhibition Hub Art Center in Doraville. More information is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Jack McBrayer stops by. The comedian and actor will discuss the release of season two of his children's series, Hello Jack, The Kindness Show. If you missed part of today's show, like my earlier conversation with members of the a cappella music group Nobuntu, you can catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you will find a complete archive of our stories so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE at last. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.